Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm very, very excited about our study today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 if you want to begin flipping there. And as you probably know, we're in our message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order to see for ourselves what the Word of God says about Jesus. So it's Jesus in his own words as he would have us know him, not as others would portray him, but as he truly is. And this week we're going to be ministered to, instructed by, enlightened by one of the greatest stories ever told. You've probably heard it before and yet regardless of how familiar you are with it, it still packs an incredible punch because it's so radical and powerful in the picture of grace that it provides. Today we're going to be studying the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 1 of today's chapter is amazing to me in light of what has just taken place in the chapter before it. If you were with us last week, Luke 14 is a difficult and heavy chapter because in it, Jesus quantifies what it means to be his disciple. He gets incredibly and uncomfortably specific about what it looks like to follow him as his disciple. And you may recall that the gist of what Jesus taught was that being his disciple means loving him infinitely more than anything or anyone else and being willing to follow the pattern of his life, living as a servant, even to the point of laying down your life if necessary. Now look at verse one of today's chapter. It's not what any of us would have expected to happen next after Jesus has just quantified discipleship so radically. Verse one. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to hear him. And that just messes me up. That messes me up because these unlikely followers of Jesus are drawn to him because they've been written off by the religious establishment of the day. They've essentially been told, you're beyond redemption. Your only purpose is to serve as a bad example of what a life looks like when you make all the wrong choices. And yet Jesus, nowhere in his entire quantification of discipleship, ever mentions their past. He never talks about anybody's past when he's talking about what it takes to be his disciple. He didn't talk about the sins that had come to define their lives up to that point. He didn't talk about how they needed to be from a certain place or have a certain level of education or religious understanding, all Jesus said was there's one thing that's needed to be my disciple. Love me above all else. Love me above all else. And there was something so wonderful about who Jesus was and who Jesus is that all these tax collectors and sinners said, we're interested in doing that. We're interested in finding out more and we're interested in following you. You know, the highest calling we have is to love God. The highest calling we have is to love God. The greatest thing that you can be great at is loving God. My prayer is that God would help us to be great at loving him. In verse 2 we read, And the Pharisees and scribes complain, saying, This man receives, it just means he welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And I want to make sure we don't get the wrong picture here. You see, Jesus is not approving of the sin of those who are walking in rebellion in any way, shape, or form. And Jesus was well known enough that none of these sinners are coming to Jesus thinking or hoping that he's going to say, I'm cool with your sin. Just keep doing it. 
They had heard him talk about how they would have to forsake everything if they wanted to be his disciple. But they still wanted to know more about Jesus. But clearly they felt comfortable about Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus was telling them that everything they were doing was okay. It was because Jesus was so great at not expecting non-believers to act like believers. So make a note of this. Non-believers felt comfortable around Jesus because he didn't expect them to act like believers. Non-believers felt comfortable around Jesus because he didn't expect them to act like believers. You see, as believers, we're not supposed to make non-believers feel comfortable around us by acting like non-believers ourselves. That's where the church gets way off track when they say, okay, let's be like those who don't believe in Jesus so that we can reach those who don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus didn't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible simply teaches that we're able to make non-believers feel comfortable around us by not expecting them to act like believers. And Jesus was great at that. I was just speaking with my kids during our Bible time this week, and we were talking about how we're supposed to deal with the culture we live in where all kinds of sexual expressions that go against the word of God are celebrated. And what I told them was, you know, we love everyone because everyone is made in the image of God and Jesus died for everyone. We love everyone. And we don't expect non-believers to act like believers. And we don't judge those outside of the church. The Bible says that's God's business. What we're supposed to be concerned with is that we, as believers, live and act like believers. That's what the Bible says. We're not to judge those outside the church. Are we not to judge those inside, is what the Bible actually says. You're a believer, act like a believer, but don't expect a non-believer to act like a believer. Jesus was so great at doing that. And when people asked him what it meant to be a believer, when they said, okay, I'm, I'm interested in being a believer, Jesus was very upfront with them. He said, all right, this is what it means. He was never shy about saying, you're gonna have to leave behind some things if you're going to follow me. Some things are going to change as you begin to follow me. And if you desire to do that, then come along and follow me. But these sinners flocked to Jesus because everyone viewed them as being beyond redemption. And so they had begun to view themselves as being beyond redemption. So when Jesus shows up and says, hey, there's room in my kingdom for you too. Man, they were interested and they drew near and they listened up. Verse three, it says, so he spoke this parable to them. He's speaking to the Pharisees and scribes. He wants to give them insight into the heart of his father and therefore his heart too. Verse four, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, underline rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And we talked about this in detail when we studied Matthew 18 and we shared that the shepherd in this parable would have secured the 99 before he went out looking for the missing one. So it's not that he says, forget the 99, I don't care about them, he secures them and then he shifts all his attention to the one that is missing. It's a simple story that was highly relatable at the time. As Jesus points out, any one of them would have gone looking for a missing sheep. Any of them, without question. 
And if they found it, they all would have expected their, quote, friends and neighbors to rejoice with them when they found their missing sheep. And here's the punchline of the parable, verse 7. I say to you, underline, I say to you. Now he gets personal and he says, I say to you, you Pharisees and scribes, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He was using the missing sheep as a picture for the person, the son or daughter who belongs to the family of God but is not yet in the family of God. And when a missing son or daughter comes into the family, there's great rejoicing, not because God loves them more than the ones he already has, but because they were missing. If you lose something precious that's missing, Ladies, you lose a piece of jewelry. The first thing you do is not go to your jewelry box, look at everything you have and go, but look at all that I still have. You don't do that. All your attention goes to the thing that is missing. Somebody says, hey, you know, uh, $50,000 just disappeared from your retirement fund. I know, but look at what I still have. That's really what matters. All of our attention immediately shifts to what's missing. So make a note of this. When something precious to us goes missing, it gets our attention. When something precious to us goes missing, it gets our attention. And not only does heaven rejoice, but God's expectation is that those who are his friends are going to share in his joy and celebrate right along with him. This is an indictment on these religious leaders because Jesus is pointing out how their heart toward these sinners is the complete opposite of his father's heart towards these sinners. They don't want these guys in the family of God. They don't want these guys showing up at synagogue next week. These people are a mess in their eyes and Jesus is setting them straight by saying, guys, heaven is rejoicing that these people are turning to me, that they're coming into the kingdom family. And you know who else is rejoicing? Everyone who's a friend of God, that's who else is rejoicing. Second parable, verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Each silver coin was called a drachma. And when a Jewish woman was married, things are a little bit vague on this, but we understand from history and tradition, this was really the closest thing she would have to a wedding ring, an engagement ring. She wouldn't have a ring. She would have this garland, this headdress that would contain 10 drachmas, which is 10 silver coins. And this was her great treasure. This was something of such sentimental importance that even if you went bankrupt and were foreclosed on, nobody could touch this 10 silver pieced garland. Nobody could touch that. It was off limits like a wedding ring. It had enormous, irreplaceable sentimental value and if you were a married or engaged woman at that time you wouldn't go out without this thing and she loses one of them and so the picture Jesus describes is this wife who's lost one of these precious silver coins immense sentimental value and she's now lit a lamp so she can see in the house and she's moving the furniture and she's sweeping and she's looking through the piles of dirt she's checking every nook and every cranny verse 9 and when she has found it she calls her friends and neighbors together saying rejoice with me underline rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I lost and then underline in verse 10, likewise I say to you, he turns it back to them, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Whenever the Bible is redundant, whenever it's repetitive, it really wants us to tune in on what it's saying. It's a way of emphasizing something. And you notice that in both parables, when something missing is found, the friends and neighbors are called together for a party with the invitation, rejoice with me. And in both parables, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I say to you, letting them know the lesson of this parable is for them. Because they weren't rejoicing over the loss being found. They didn't have the Father's heart, and they weren't the Father's friends. But my goodness, what a blessing this is for us. What an insight into the heart of our Father. You know, when, when you and I came into the family of God, he didn't receive us reluctantly. He didn't say, finally, Captain Screwup has come home. He didn't say, what are you doing here? There was a party in heaven, a party, great rejoicing, a celebration, and that's what heaven is going to be. It's going to be the party to end all parties. It's going to be the ultimate celebration of what Jesus has done for us. I can't wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb where somehow, someway, we're going to toast the greatness of God as person after person stands up and says, let me tell you what he did for me. Let me tell you how he found me. Let me tell you about the pit that he pulled me up out of. We're going to cheer. We're, we're going to laugh. We're going to cry at the same time. We're going to clap. We're going to high five. We're going to fist bump. It, it's going to be loud. It's going to be wild. It's going to be free. It's not going to be a party. It's going to be the party. And we're invited. I can't wait. Now we reach what many, even secular literary scholars considered to be quite simply the greatest story ever told. It's short, but it hits on so many emotions, and we're all able to find ourselves in this story. It has plot twists that nobody could have predicted. It's the parable of the prodigal son, and I'm going to try and get through this, but this parable absolutely wrecks me every time I study it, every time. And if you want to know what's so different about Christianity from every other religion, it's this. It's in the parable of the prodigal son. The difference between Christianity and everything else is grace. It's grace. And this story, like God's grace, couldn't have been dreamed up by any man because you'll see we just don't think like this. We don't dream like this. The more you study this parable, the more you realize that it has to come from somewhere else, somewhere better, someone better. In verse 11, then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. What this younger son is asking for is he's asking for his father to give him his inheritance now while his father is still alive. And this would have been a, a shocking request in this culture at this time because the audience would have been saying, what a, what a horrible son, what a terrible son, because what the son was saying could only have been taken as, I wish you were dead right now, dad so that I could have the money that I want. I wish you were dead. The idea is that the son would rather have his money now than his dad. If he had the choice, he'd rather have the money than his dad. 
And the idea that a son would love money more than his own father was, and hopefully still is, just awful. Nevertheless, this is the request the younger son makes. Verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. It just means wasteful living. Now we learn why the son wanted his inheritance ASAP. You see, he wanted to shake free from living under his father's roof. He viewed his father as the one holding him back from really experiencing the joys of life. So he takes the cash and he gets as far away from his dad as he can, believing he knows far better than his dad what it's going to take to give him a happy life. And like every young person who does this, they think they're a rebel. They think they're a true individual as they follow in the well-worn path of countless others. And this young man gets wasted, literally and metaphorically. He wastes himself, his emotions, his passions, his gifts, his resources. He wastes himself in and on what he believes is the kind of lifestyle that will bring him satisfaction because that's what everybody else says. Certainly there's no way his father could ever understand what he needs or wants out of life. Write this down. The younger son kills his relationship with his father in order to pursue the pleasures of the world. He kills his relationship with his father in order to pursue the pleasures of the world. In verse 14 it says, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. For many of us, this is our story. And it's the story of how most adults find Jesus. We form a belief that somewhere other than the Father's house, somewhere other than a relationship with God, holds the key to our future happiness. And so we set off for that destination, believing that we're going to find what we're hoping for in that far country. Perhaps it's a relationship that we believe is going to bring us the happiness we crave. Perhaps it's owning a house or reaching a certain position in our career or a certain income level. Perhaps it's recognition in our field or becoming well-known in the right circles. But inevitably, inevitably, after a short time or after decades, we find that there's really a famine in our far country, not the abundance of life that we're looking for. And we find that We've spent all. We've given it our best shot. We've tried every idea we have and we find ourselves in want. And we realize that another person, no matter how wonderful they are, can't fulfill the deepest needs that we have in our souls. We find that money can't actually buy us peace for our troubled minds or our troubled souls. We find that power doesn't make us immune to cancer and owning our dream house doesn't truly satisfy us. And like that, like the son in the parable, we find ourselves out of ideas. We've spent all, and we begin to be in want. So make a note of this. After spending himself on the world, the younger son found himself in famine and in want. After spending himself on the world, the younger son found himself in famine and in want. Verse 15, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, Still not ready to go home yet. And that citizen sent him into his fields to feed swine, the pigs. 
And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, to the Jewish audience listening, pigs were unclean under the Old Testament law, the laws of God, and they were thought of as the most absolutely disgusting creatures on the planet. And I tried to think of a way to translate this into a modern day equivalent to help you understand how disgusting this is, but literally every example I could give would have been too distasteful and it would have been all you'd be thinking about for the rest of the message. So I'm not gonna mention it, but suffice to say, the audience is almost vomiting over this analogy, this picture Jesus is painting of him feeding the pigs and wanting to eat the same food that the pigs are eating. This would have made them gag. And that's where we end up when we place our hope in a far country. We end up hating ourselves and hating our lives. And at this point, people do one of two things. If I'm honest, one of three. The first thing they do is they either deceive themselves and say, well, clearly I need an even bigger house, a different spouse, a different job, more money, more fame, then, 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 then I'll be happy. And the thing that just struck me now, the, the actual third option I thought of is when they've tried all of those things to the extreme, sometimes they end their lives. That's why we see people commit suicide who are wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, famous, respected. People want to be like them. But it is a dark place to run out of ideas and still not be happy. That's a dark place to be. The other major thing people do is people either say it's clear this isn't working and I'm not going to find what I'm looking for in this far country. And the son in the parable at least has the wisdom to conclude the latter. Let's read verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, underline when he came to himself. I love that phrase. Don't rush past that. Because it intentionally makes it sound like the son is in some kind of trance. He's in some kind of stupor. Because he was. He was deceived. And like many of us, this little line in here is describing the moment when the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and for the first time we began to see clearly this is not working. I'm not going in the right direction. We're placing our hope in the wrong things and for the first time suddenly we see it. So write this down. The younger son was only able to see clearly when he hit rock bottom. This is so key. He was only able to see clearly when he hit rock bottom. Why? Because he didn't want to see until he hit rock bottom. He was so convinced, so sure that he knew what would make him happy. He knew what would make him satisfied in life. And he was going for it with everything he had. Only when he hit rock bottom did he grind to a halt and become able to look around him and go, oh my goodness. What am I doing? What am I doing? We've said this before. God loves you enough to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it takes to get you to him. He loves you enough to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it takes to get you to him. Because some of us are simply unwilling to see clearly until we've exhausted all of our own ideas of what will bring us happiness and peace in life. I know I could go around the room 
And person after person among us would say, that's part of my story. That's what had to happen in my life. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. Even the servants in my father's house eat enough food that there are leftovers. What am I doing here starving? This is the conclusion he comes to as he begins to see clearly and comes to himself. What, what am I doing here? I have a father whose servants eat great. Verse 18, he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And if you study verbiage across the Bible, you'll find that what he's saying here represents the heart that's considered truly repentant, the heart that is willing to own his sin. The son's not planning on going to his father and saying, Dad, I got a raw deal. I made some bad investments. I chose the wrong friends. That's why things went south in my life. That's not what he's doing here. He's owning every choice he's made. And he's recognizing that it was his choices that caused him to end up where he is. And that's one of the true indicators of repentance. Owning our sin and not blaming it on anyone else. Not what anyone else did to you. Not where you came from. But saying at the end of the day, it's, it's my sin. Write this down. True repentance means taking responsibility for our own sin. Taking responsibility for our own sin. It's not somebody else's fault. So the son is planning and rehearsing the speech he's going to give to his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The situation I've gotten myself into is my own fault, and I recognize, Father, that I don't deserve mercy or kindness from you. Just let me be one of your servants. Just let me be somewhere in your house, please. This is our situation. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all rejected God. We've all sinned against God. We've all chosen our way over God's way. And we've all found ourselves in the hopeless pit of sin because of our own choice to sin. It's our own choice. None of us have a right to demand grace from God. None of us have a right to demand mercy from God. Our only hope was to cry out, God, is there any way I can find a place in your house? I don't care what it looks like. I, I know it's all my fault. I know I don't deserve your help or your kindness. But is there any way you could find room in your house for me? That's our situation. Make a note of this. True repentance doesn't demand grace or mercy. It doesn't say you have to forgive me your God. That's what you do. You have to forgive me. You're my father. True repentance doesn't demand grace or mercy because it understands that we don't really deserve either. Most of these listeners would have expected the moral of the story to be only a fool leaves his father's house. So they would have been expecting the rest of the story to play out something like this. As the son approached his father's house, he reached for the door. He knocked on the door and the father answered and said, Who is it? The son answered and said, It's me, your son. Although I recognize that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me like one of the servants in your house. And the father replied, It was your choice to leave my house. 
You turned your back on me, and when you did that, you ceased to be my son. As you have sown, so you shall reap. Receive now your inheritance among the wicked. There is no home for you here. That's what the audience was expecting. Some solid morals. Don't stray from the law. Listen to the wise instruction of the law. Those who walk the path of rebellion are forever doomed. Don't forget, under the Old Testament law, you would receive the death penalty for dishonoring your parents. In Leviticus we read, For everyone who curses his mother or his father shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. And this younger son certainly would have fallen into that category by asking for his inheritance before his father had even died. So the audience is expecting that this parable will turn out to be a a vivid and powerful warning to walk the path of righteousness. You have to understand that to understand how shocking and unexpected the plot twist is that Jesus is about to reveal. The son was in a hopeless situation, just as you and I are in a hopeless situation in our sin. What will the father do? What will he do? Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's shocking. It's unexpected. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's scandalous kindness. It's the greatest plot twist of all time. And Bible scholars agree the reason the father is able to see the son a great way off because it's implied that the father was on the roof of his house, scanning the horizon, looking aching for, hoping for, longing for, believing for the return of his son every day. And that's how it is with us. You know, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see clearly and we begin to realize that we need God. And and before we even fully understand what that means, before we understand what salvation really is, the the moment we begin to turn toward God and say, "I, I don't understand, but I know I need God in my life. The response we encounter is a heavenly father who has compassion on us, who runs to embrace us. And if you were a mature man, an elder, running was not seen as something that was very becoming. It was something young laborers did, not distinguished men, not fathers. Some of you are like, I can get behind that. We need to go back to the system. But the father doesn't care. He doesn't care. And Jesus wants us to understand that this father like our heavenly father, is overwhelmed with joy at the return of his son. Make a note of this. The grace of God is the greatest and most unexpected plot twist of all time. The grace of God is the greatest and most unexpected plot twist of all time. We forget sometimes this is not how it should have played out. This is not what we deserve. This is something so gloriously different. And the shocked son, still expecting the judgment he knows he deserves, launches into his prepared speech. And the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me read it again in case you missed it. 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what it says. That's what it says. Let me explain. Go look at verse 18 and 19 where the son gives us his prepared speech. His plan is to say this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He never has the chance to get out the words, make me like one of your hired servants. He never has the chance to get the words out because his father has no interest in his son's prepared speech. And his father cuts him off in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe, underline best robe, and put it on him. And put a ring, underline ring, on his hand. And sandals, underline sandals, on his feet. And I just love that. The son is going to give it his best shot, his prepared speech. Father says, we're not talking about that. The only thing that matters is you're here. You're back, you're home. We're not talking about the past. We're not even acknowledging that. We've got nothing to talk about when it comes to what's happened up to this point. It's forgotten. It's irrelevant. As the word says, it's cast into the sea of his forgetfulness. The father only cares that his son is home. It's a new beginning. And the father calls for his son to be brought the best robe. Whose robe would that be? It would be the father's. Just as we too are robed in the righteousness of God through Jesus, the Bible tells us that all of our sin and failure and shame and guilt is taken away by Jesus and we are clothed, literally robed in the righteousness of Jesus. As Isaiah wrote, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And the ring that the father would have called for for the son would have been the signet ring. It's a ring that has the family crest put on it. And you could use this ring as a form of identification. You could use it to conduct family business. You could use it like a charge card. If you were sending items or shipping items, you would put your seal in wax that was binding the package and so that only somebody else who had the same ring could open it on the other side. You could seal letters. This is what's happening. The father is giving him the keys to the kingdom. He's saying, everything I have is yours. The son who's just wasted everything, the father's like, here you go. Here's the family charge card. Here's all my account numbers. Here's the holiday home that I didn't tell your aunt about. Here's everything. Even the sandals meant something. You see, servants and slaves didn't wear sandals. Only family did. It means he was considered a member of the family. And don't miss the gravity of what is happening here. The kindness of the father is so over the top. The son would have been almost collapsing, weeping from the magnitude of his father's kindness. It's just too much to take. First, it was unexpected and undeserved mercy. The son didn't get what he deserved. Then it was unexpected and undeserved grace. The son got what he did not deserve. That's the God we serve. That's why we serve him. Write this down. I love this. The younger son expected his father's judgment, but instead received his father's kingdom. The younger son expected his father's judgment, but instead received his father's kingdom. 
you and I should have been judged the way Jesus was in our place. But because he did that for us, instead of judgment, he gave us the kingdom. He gave us the kingdom. Verse 23, the father keeps talking and barking out commands and says, And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead, underline dead, and is alive, underline alive again. And he was lost, underline lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. When he says dead and alive, he's speaking relationally. The son was dead relationally to me, and now he's alive. He's a son again. The story of the younger son ends with a party. Ends with a party. Don't you just love the Lord the way he is? There's no one like him. Nobody could have made this up because we don't think like this. We're not this gracious. We're not this merciful. This is something completely different. And before we move on to the rest of the story, I just want to pause and shine a light on the incredible example, the parable of the prodigal son gives us as parents on how to deal with a child, a son or a daughter who has rebelled and has left for a far country. It may not be very far. They may not have even left your house. But they're in that far country relationally. They may have left your commitment to serve and honor the Lord and be doing their own thing. And I don't want to pretend that this is easy to do. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is worth consideration as being what is right, as the example that Jesus gives us in Scripture. Because I notice that the Father, he lets the Son go. He lets the Son go. Just make a note of this. The first thing is he respects the free will of his Son. He respects the free will of his Son. I'm not saying you should let your seven-year-old do whatever he wants. But what I am saying is for every one of our children, there comes an age in those teen years where your control begins to diminish. They're going to find a way to do what they want to do. And we want to do what we can to steer our children. But we also want to recognize that they, they have a free will. They have a free will. And I shared with some friends before the service just the, the horrible moment. Uh, of my peak rebellion as a teenager at 16 and I asked my mom what the punishment was going to be and she said nothing at some point you just got to decide who it is you want to be it's a horrible woman right horrible horrible and I always tell people I was like how about you punch me in the face instead let's go with that and then then I don't have to have that thought playing around in my mind but there is a truth to that at a certain point Everybody has to decide who they want to be. And this father doesn't force his son to stay. He respects his free will. But I notice he doesn't send a care package to him while he's off in the far country. Hope you're having fun. Here's a blanket and some power bars. And uh, he doesn't send him money to bail him out when he goes broke. Do you notice that? He doesn't send him Western Union. Now, I'm not saying that when your kid is passed out drunk at a party, you don't go and pick them up. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't empower their rebellion. They're moving out of your house and living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't help them pay the rent. You don't empower their sin. 
Don't empower their sin. Make a note of this. The father doesn't bail out his son when his rebellion runs out of resources. Please don't miss this. It's when the son repents that the father makes all he has available to him. When the son repents, then the father says, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. It's all available to you. The father prays, waits, hopes, longs, and expects that his son will one day return. He wouldn't have been scanning the horizon looking for him if he didn't believe that the day was actually coming when he would see his son on the horizon returning. But the father has the wisdom to let things run their course in his son's life. He understands that his son needs to come to the conclusion for himself that the things he is chasing are empty. One of the horrible truths about parenting is that you can't come to that conclusion on your kid's behalf. You can't love the Lord on your kid's behalf. You can't make wise choices on their behalf. Ultimately, they have to choose it for themselves. So write this down. The father allows his son's rebellion to run its course. To run its course. And most people, unfortunately, need to hit their rock bottom before they turn to Jesus. For any parent who loves their kids, watching that process unfold is, is excruciating, excruciatingly painful. No good parents delight in seeing their child suffer. No parent wants to see that. But the process is necessary and only the child, only the son or the daughter can decide when it's over. And the loving parent with good intentions can actually prolong their child's rebellion by funding it or sending those care packages or helping them to keep going on a dangerous path. The father loves the wayward son. None of us who hear this story can come to the conclusion he didn't love his son because he didn't go off in the country, look for him and bail him out. None of us can conclude he didn't love his son. He was always ready to welcome him with open arms, always. But the son had to decide that he wanted to come home. It's simple but very difficult and very painful to work through for any parent. If you have a wayward son or a wayward daughter, keep praying, keep hoping, keep expecting, keep believing, but let the process run its course. You can't repent for them. You can't come to the conclusion that everything they're chasing is meaningless for them. They have to come to that conclusion for themselves. Finally, write this down. The father waits, hopes, and prays for his son's return. He waits, hopes, and prays for his son's return. That's what you can be doing while you're waiting. Now here's the next twist in this incredible parable. There's another son, an older brother. How does he fit into all of this? Remember now the first two parables. They were both a setup for this final third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, designed to help the Pharisees and scribes find themselves in the parable of the prodigal son. In both of those first two parables, the person who finds the valuable treasure that was lost calls upon their friends and neighbors to rejoice with them. The implication was, clearly, that's what friends do. They rejoice when their friends find something that was lost. So how are the Pharisees and scribes going to fit into the third and final parable? 
Let's read verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. This older son, this older brother was out in the field working. He was working on the family business, being responsible. And he returns from the field to find that there's a party underway. A party for his lost brother who's returned home. So how does he react? Verse 28. But he was angry, underline angry, and would not go in. He's going to stay outside and pout. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, and then underline, these many years I have been serving you. These many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, I didn't get any harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. You see, this son's anger stems from the fact that he never left. He's been in his father's house this whole time, faithfully serving his father, not rebelling, and now he's bitter because he never got a party. He never got to celebrate with his friends. And yet his father is doing all this for his reckless and wasteful and rebellious, stupid younger brother who just showed up. And you might not want to admit it, so I'll say it. We kind of get where he's coming from. We kind of get where he's coming from, don't we? We kind of understand his beef and we understand why this might be unfolding this way. As a side note, do you notice that the father never mentions anything the younger son did while he was out in rebellion? We only know that the younger son was involved in sexual sin because of what the older brother mentions. He's the one who mentions harlots. He's the one who brings up the sins of the younger brother because apparently he's a little bitter about it. I didn't get any harlots. You know, I don't, think that, I don't think that the church really has a problem anymore rejoicing when people get saved. I thought about it, and I've never really been to a church where someone shared their testimony and the response of people in the audience was, we don't want you to be a Christian. We don't want your kind here. I've, I've never experienced that in a church. I hope you haven't either. I've never seen it happen, and believers are always pretty excited generally when someone gets saved. So, so I don't think that the point Jesus was making to the Pharisees and scribes is really something we need to work on. And in about 2,000 years, we've kind of figured out people coming to Jesus is a good thing, and we've at least learned to get on board with that idea. But there's still many applications for us from the older son, the believer who's been walking with God for many years. Firstly, the son's attitude and bitterness tell us that while he was indeed out faithfully working in the field, serving his father, his service was no longer a joy. It had become a duty. Time to go out into the field again. Work for the father. And so the first thing that's worth asking ourselves is just, is our service to the Lord a joy or is it a duty? Is it a routine or is it something that brings life to us? Is serving Jesus a burden to us? Or is it a joy? Or how about this? The, a person gets saved and it seems like very quickly they've got some amazing stories about how God is taking care of them and providing for them. And maybe we hear something like, it's amazing. This person just walked up to me and said, God told me to pay off your car. And what we're really thinking is, God's never sent anybody to pay off my car. I've been walking with him for years. Be kind of nice if he'd do that for me. 
Do we rejoice over God's radical kindness to other believers who might be younger than the faith in us? Or maybe in our mind aren't as good at being a believer as we are? Or do we find ourselves a little bit bothered because it seems like that's not happening in our lives? So how does the Lord address these issues? How does he address these concerns? What does he want to say to us? Let's hear from the Father. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And, and then underline this. All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. What the Father is saying is... I would have thrown you a party any time. All you had to do was ask. You could have been rejoicing and being merry with your friends at my house any time. I would have thrown you a feast and shared anything I had with you. I would have killed the fatted calf for you any time you wanted. All you had to do was ask. And that's still true. The joy that we see in a new believer. The unexpected and generous answers to prayer the vibrancy of faith, all these wonderful things, they're still available to those of us who've been walking with the Lord for years, even a lifetime. There's still a, a party of joy available to us in our relationship with the Father if we'll just ask, if we'll just ask. Write this down. Through Jesus, we have access to all the benefits of being a child of God. We need only ask. We have access to all the benefits of being a child of God. We need only ask. In summary, all I'm going to say is what we've talked about already. Do we have God's heart for the lost? Man, there's nothing to strike that nerve. There's no better analogy that God could give than a, a parent longing for the return of a wayward child. And what the Lord is also saying, he says, that's how I feel about those who are lost, those who are lost. And that's how I respond when one of them comes into the family of God. And I wonder if we have his passion, if we share in his longing to see the lost come to know him. I wonder if we're praying. And I wanna be honest, I know we live in a culture, in a time and in a place where most people aren't interested in God. And I don't have a perfect system of how you can get your family saved or your coworkers saved. But I do know that the Holy Spirit can do unbelievable things. And I do know that I need more of the Holy Spirit. And you need more of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to challenge us to not give up on asking the Holy Spirit to help us and empower us and give us boldness to reach the lost. Don't give up. Don't stop praying for those people God has put in your life. Because I can't read the parable of the prodigal son, the missing coin, the lost sheep, without coming to the conclusion that people mean the world to our heavenly father. They mean the world to him. And I can't look at the cross without coming to the conclusion that people mean the world to Jesus. Let's ask this morning that God would give us boldness and his heart for the lost. And let's look for opportunities, even this week, to share our faith, to pray with someone, to invite someone to church. And if you're far from the Lord right now, but the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see that you're chasing empty things, I want you to know that what is waiting for you in the house of God and a relationship with God is not a God who's mad at you, but a God who is waiting to run to you and embrace you with open arms.
That's who God is. If your kids are in a far country right now, let things play out while you pray it out. Let things play out while you pray it out. And let's not forget that everything the Lord has is ours. We're part of his family through Jesus. There's no joy or passion or peace that some new believer is experiencing that's not available to you as well right now. If you feel like something's missing, all you have to do is ask. Ask. The Father says, all that I have is yours. And I'll share it all with you. All you have to do is ask. Let's not get so busy working in the field for God that we forget our relationship with our Father. And we forget to come inside the house and just enjoy it. Just enjoy our relationship with Him. I want to close by reading to you from Titus, which says this. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us your heart for the lost. Lord, it's clear that your attention is on those precious things of yours which are missing right now. Father, I pray you would give us your boldness. Lord, we don't know what the right formula is. But God, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the moment, to give us the words to say. And God, to break our hearts all over again for those brothers and sisters who are missing from the family right now. Give us your heart for the lost, Lord. Give us your boldness. Father, I pray that if we feel like we're a complete screw-up right now, that, Lord, you would help us to remember you are always the Father running to embrace us. You are always the Father welcoming us home. You are always the God of new beginnings. The old is past, the new has come. And Father, I pray right now for every person in this room who has a son or a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a brother, a sister, who is in that far country right now. Father, we know you see them and we know you love them. And Lord, we know that, that hearts are broken over where they are right now. Father, I pray for strength for every parent. I pray for wisdom and discernment, for walking that difficult line between being there and showing the heart of the Father, but also recognizing that sometimes things have to hit rock bottom so that our kids can come to themselves and begin to see things clearly. And Lord, we just simply ask that you would be gracious about where that bottom point is. Father, let it come quickly. Uh, let the wayward son and the wayward daughter turn to you quickly. Father, whatever you need to do, 
to have them turn to you, as difficult and as painful as it is. The end result we want is we want them back in your house, back in your family, God, where they belong. So, Father, we ask, trusting your heart as a father, God, do what you need to do to bring that about. And give us the strength to be strong as you work on them, as your spirit brings them to you. And, Father, I pray for any of us whose faith is just dry. Maybe we're just out of joy. Maybe we're out of peace this morning. Father, help us to remember that we do not have because we do not ask. All things are ours through Christ Jesus. The keys of the kingdom. So Lord, if there's anything we lack this morning, help us to ask and believe and receive in faith that you gladly give every good gift to your children. As your word says. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.